A lady celebrating her 102nd birthday was asked what she enjoyed most about being that advanced age. She replied, the lack of peer pressure. (laughs) Webster defines peer as one that is of equal standing with another. Revelation 1, 9 through 20 clearly shows that Jesus has no peer who has ever walked on planet Earth or will in the future. Turn to Revelation chapter 1. As you turn to Revelation chapter 1, I'm just going to take a moment and review our three points uh, from last week's sermon. Uh, We saw point number one, the Trinity blesses you through Jesus Christ. Remember the extended blessing from the Trinity, God the Father? Then we had it through the Holy Spirit, the seven spirits, and then from Jesus Christ. Number two, we we observe that Jesus will return to judge and rule. And that was Revelation 1-7, a theme verse of the book. And every eye will see him. And then our third point was God assures Jesus' return to judge and rule. Let me go ahead and read now. Our text for today, may I say this is a critical passage uh, in the book of Revelation. If you understand this text correctly, it helps with the interpretation for the rest of the book. Revelation 1, pick it up with me please in verse 9. I, John, both your brother and companion in the tribulation and kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ, was on the island that is called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice as of a trumpet saying, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. And what you see, write in a book and send it to the seven churches which are in Asia, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamus, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that spoke with me. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the feet and girded about the chest with a golden band. His head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes like a flame of fire. His feet were like fine brass, as if refined in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters. He had in his right hand seven stars. Out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying to me, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am he who lives and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of Hades and of death. Write the things which you have seen and the things which are and the things which will take place after this. The mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands which you saw are the seven churches. Would you uh, bow your heads and your hearts with me as I lead us in prayer? Father, I, I thank you as we come upon this sacred text to learn about your son and his future role 
in our lives and over the lives of everyone who was ever born. I ask that you would help me to articulate the truths that we are about to study. May your spirit, the spirit of truth, guide us into all truth. I ask now in Jesus' name, amen. Picking it up in verse nine, for the third time, John self-identifies. I, John, we saw him identify himself back in chapter one and verse one, and in one, four, and now for the third time. He links himself with the recipients of his writing. Notice he calls himself a brother because he's eternally related to them through Jesus Christ and companion. He leaves off the word in his title, Apostle. He identifies with the group to whom he's writing because many of them, like himself, suffer for the cause of Christ. John then uses a hen diatrist. <laughs> it basically is three words with just one intended thought. You notice here that the article, the, governs in tribulation and in the kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ. The article, if you will, brings these three concepts together as one intended thought. So, the idea here is tribulation or affliction, and the other two words characterize that tribulation or affliction. Tribulation, we're not speaking here about the end time tribulation that we will study in chapter 6 through 19. Uh, this word for tribulation means a distress, a pressure. All of us face pressure and distress. Uh, Jesus himself says in John 16, these things I have spoken unto you, that in me you might have peace. In the world you will have, here's a word, tribulation. But be of good cheer, for I have overcome the world. John is knowing tribulation, <laughs> pressure, affliction, and the ones to whom he writes know the same. So it's the tribulation, but it says here, in the kingdom. In the kingdom. Uh, when I define the kingdom of God, it's the invisible rule of God over his own, which will be manifest in a literal physical and visible earthly kingdom. We'll study that, Lord willing, in Revelation chapter 20. Paul shows a present distress and a future kingdom in Acts 14, down in verse 22. Let me just read this to you. We must, through many tribulations, enter the kingdom of God. It's the cross before the crown. It's the suffering before the glory. And then John adds here, and the patience of Jesus Christ. Hupamane. The idea is a persistence even when being afflicted. It's a steadfast endurance. And both John and his readers need to endure the present suffering because the kingdom is before them. And where is John? At this time, he's on the Isle of Patmos, 10 miles long, about six miles wide. Uh, it was located 40 miles off the coast of Asia 
minor. Now, let me just share a principle uh, with you here that I think is key to understand. It's the principle of limitation. There are times when the Almighty limits us to broaden our scope of ministry. Recall when Paul was under house arrest in Acts chapter 28 for two years. Very limited was he. And yet he writes Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon. Those four books have impacted the church of Jesus Christ for 2,000 years. So the apostle whose goal, according to Romans 15, was to preach Christ where he hadn't been named, was limited, but yet God used that limitation to broaden his ministry. Here is John. He's perhaps in his 80s at this point in his life. And where does God put him? In a very limited location, but yet gives him the great assignment of recording the book of Revelation. So it's a good lesson. When you feel limited like Joseph and maybe cast into prison, God can use you right there. Now, why is John on the island of Patmos? Notice it says the word for twice in our following expression. For the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. Now, two of our early church fathers Irenaeus and then Clement of Alexandria uh, said that John was banished to the island of Patmos under Domitian. Uh, Domitian was the emperor who ruled from AD 81 to 96, but then he was left to go when Domitian died in AD 96, and it is recorded that John went to Ephesus. Now, Revelation 1.10 John writes, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. The Lord's day. Uh, I can recall going back decades when um, I started to study the book of Revelation. And I remember sitting there with my commentary by John Walverd, pot of coffee, freshly brewed, and just working through the book. And I remember reading Charles Ryrie, two great scholars, both from Dallas Theological Seminary. And they referred the Lord's Day, not to Sunday, but a future time dealing with the tribulation and then millennial kingdom. Uh, Although I have many things in common with those two great scholars that are now with the Lord, uh, I disagree that the Lord's Day is referring to to that future time. And let me give you four reasons why I think the Lord's day is just simply saying Sunday. That was the day that this vision is given to John. Number one, the day of the Lord always has the noun cure you, cure you, and not the adjective that is used here. That's number one. Uh, Number two, where is John looking at at this point of revelation? Remember outline? Remember in 119? We have three time zones, past, present, and future. John's not looking into the future here, like the eschatological day of the Lord, but he's looking at the past. And so I think even that shows us that the context is not about that future day, but in the past. Number three, 
Sunday uh, is described this way, the Lord's Day, in the early writing known as the Didache. And by the end of the second century, the Lord's Day was a common designation for Sunday, the day that Christ conquered death, that the church assembled to worship him. And then fourthly, this uh, uh, adjective is used in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty of the Lord's Supper. And may I ask you, when do they traditionally hold the Lord's Supper? Well, we're told in Acts chapter 20 and verse 7, it was Sunday. So I think very simply, all John is establishing is that this vision is given to him on a Sunday. And then he continues here, and I heard behind me a loud voice. Uh, A loud voice is significant in the book of Revelation. Uh, we have uh, a loud voice given in chapter 5, verse 2, 12, chapter 6, verse 10, 7, 2, 7, 10, 8, 13, 10, 3, and on and on and on. So I just want to point out, oftentimes when there's something significant, noteworthy, uh, we have a loud voice. Uh, the loud voice is as of a trumpet, Biblically speaking, when the trumpet or trumpets were sound, you needed to submit to the trumpet or trumpets. In Numbers chapter 10, it refers to that Israel had two trumpets. If uh, both were blown, the congregation was to assemble. If only one trumpet was blown, then the leaders would be gathered together. But the point being, When the trumpet was sounded, people needed to submit to the trumpet. Down in verse 11, what's the sound here saying? I am the Alpha and Omega, the first and the last. The designation of the eternality of God. He's always existed and always will exist. And what you see says to John, saying to John here, what you see, referring to the entire book of Revelation, right in a book. This is significant. You might want to underline, highlight the word right. It's the first of 12 uses in the book of Revelation. This is significant. That's why John is there on the island of Patmos, because he needs to write. And he's going to write the seven churches. I believe that they are, if you will, representative of churches globally. I think these seven churches, when we study them, will show us characteristics of churches everywhere. And we can learn from those seven churches that were historically in Asia Minor, Western Turkey, and see applications for today. So, now that we've come this far, let me give you our first point. Point number one, humbly serve the judge of the church. Humbly serve the judge of the church. And this will be from verse 9 all the way through to to verse 17, verse A. Pick it up with me in verse 12. Then I turned to see the voice that spoke with me. Uh, This is a metonymy. A metonymy is the change of a name. See, because technically speaking, you cannot see a voice. The voice is used here to represent 
a person, a person. If I were to give you the expression, for instance, that the pen is mightier than the sword, what's the idea of a pen? Well, it's speaking of thoughts, thoughts, reasonings that a person has. And what's the concept of a sword? It's physical warfare. You see, it's one name in place of another. Verse 12 continues, And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. John Walvoord writes, It would seem from the description here that instead of one lampstand with seven lamps, there are seven separate lampstands, each made of gold and arranged in a circle. Why lampstands? Uh, which, by the way, were portable oil lamps. We have the definition down in chapter 1 in verse 20. So would you turn here, Revelation 1, down in verse 20. That's one of the, I think, glorious things about the book of Revelation. Oftentimes, the symbol given is interpreted within the book. Chapter 1, verse 20, thinking about the lamp stands. The mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, the messengers. And the seven lampstands which you saw are the seven churches. I find it intriguing that when the church of Jesus Christ is described, it's a lampstand because the church is to give light to a dark world. And that's the idea here. Revelation 1.13. And in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man. Son of Man, the title here derives from Daniel chapter 7. In verse 13, it is the way that Jesus most often self identifies. He's the Son belonging to the category of man. But, Son of Man only appears twice in the book of Revelation here and over in chapter 14 in verse 14. So go there with me, please. And I want to point out to you, and this is significant, both times that the expression occurs refers to a context of judgment. That is what is key in Revelation 1, 9 through 20, that Jesus is a judge. Here in chapter 14, verse 14. Then I looked and behold, a white cloud. And on the cloud sat one like, here's the expression, the son of man, having on his head a golden crown and in his hand a sharp sickle. Uh, when we study the passage in the future, it's a sickle for judgment. And uh, it's a, if we're talking about that future time of Armageddon that is going to be described more fully in chapter 19. So, back with me please, over to chapter 1. And so as we're thinking here of Son of Man, I want you to think in the context of judgment. And why is that also significant? Well, let's go back and let's do a little probing here. Uh, let's go to the Gospel of John, John chapter 5. John chapter 5, and as you're coming to John chapter 5, let your eyes work down to verse 22. John chapter 5, verse 22, because ultimately the question needs to be addressed, before whom will we stand? In other words, who is going to be our judge? 
John chapter 5, verse 22. For the Father judges no one, but has committed, observe the words, all judgment to the Son. Now, staying with me in chapter 5, come down to verse 26. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself and has given him authority to execute judgment also. Why? Because he is the Son of Man. Jesus described in chapter 1, down here in verse 13, and in Revelation 14, 14, as the Son of Man is depicted as a judge. He has been given the authority to judge. He can relate to you and me because he has known the human experience. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. And think about this for just a moment with me. In Hebrews 4, we're told that Jesus was tempted in all points like we, yet without sin. That's chapter 4 and verse 15. Who better to judge you and me than the Son of Man who has known the human experience? Now, back in 1.13, and we want to pull out some details here. Got to unpack this, so to speak. It's speaking of Jesus clothed with a garment down to the feet. Now, many commentators have pointed out that the garment down to the feet described Jesus as a priest. And it is true that six of the seven Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament uses of the word refer to the priest attire, but... I'd like to point out to you that in three references, in just one passage, and if you would turn it with me to Ezekiel chapter 9, both these words, both of the Greek words brought together refer to judgment and a context of judgment. And I think that's how they are used here as well. Not as Jesus interceding for us. That doesn't fit the context of Revelation chapter 1, but as a judge. Why? He's going to go then to the seven churches. What's he going to do? He's going to judge them. And then as we transition into the tribulation period, he is the one that unfolds the seals, the trumpets, the bowls. Why? So judgment can be poured forth on the earth. And then at the end of the tribulation, who comes back with the two-edged sword to judge the world? Revelation 20, why do we have the great white throne? Because Jesus Christ will judge the unsaved at that point. He's the judge. He's the judge. Okay, here we go. Ezekiel chapter 9. Now, Ezekiel chapter 9 will make you sit up and take note. Uh, Ezekiel uh, comes at a time that the southern kingdom of Judah had been disobedient to God. And there are three waves of judgment. One was in 605 BC, one in 597, and the big one in 586 BC when Nebuchadnezzar comes in, destroys the temple, and just decimates uh, Jerusalem. Ezekiel chapter 9 are two terms together that we find in Revelation chapter 1 occur three times in this passage. In the Greek translation of the Old Testament, chapter 9, verse 2, chapter 9, verse 3, and chapter 9 in verse 11. Let me walk you through this. Verse 1, Ezekiel 9. Then he, that's God, 
called out in my, that's Ezekiel's, hearing with a loud voice saying, let those who have charge over the city draw near. I believe they're angels, and we'll see this as we move through the text. Each with a deadly weapon in his hand. See, judgment is looming, and God is going to decimate that city that was disobedient to him, the southern kingdom of Judah, to be more specific. Verse 2, and suddenly six men came from the direction of the upper gate, which faces north, each with his battle axe in his hand. One man among them was, here's our expression, everybody, two Greek words, clothed with linen and had a writer's inkhorn at his side they went in and stood before the bronze altar you sense judgments coming verse three now the glory of the lord of israel had gone up from the cherub where it had been to the threshold of the temple and he called to the man once again clothed with linen you see the expression who had the writer's inkhorn at his side, verse four. And the Lord said to him, go through the midst of the city, through the midst of the Jerusalem, and put a mark on the foreheads of the men who sigh and cry over all the abominations that are done within. Observe the word mark in verse four. It's the Hebrew last letter of the alphabet, tau. Originally, the tau was written like a cross, The idea here, the angels go through the city, put an invisible mark on those that have been true to the Almighty so that they can be spared during the judgment. Now down to verse 5. To the others he said in my hearing, go after him through the city and kill. Do not let your eyes spare nor have any pity. Utterly slay old and young men, maidens and little children and women, but do not come near anyone on whom is the mark. See, they're protected. And begin at my sanctuary. Where does judgment begin? The house of God is intriguing, is it not? So they began with the elders who were before the temple. Then he said to them, defile the temple and fill the courts with the slain. Go out. And they went out and killed in the city. So it was. That while they were killing them, I was left alone and I fell on my face and cried out and said, Ah, Lord God, will you destroy all the remnant of Jerusalem in pouring out your fury on Jerusalem? Then he said to me, The iniquity of the house of Israel and Judah is exceedingly great and the land is full of bloodshed and the city full of perversity. For they said, The Lord has forsaken the land and the Lord does not see. And as for me also, my eye will neither spare, nor will I have pity, but I will recompense their deeds on their own heads. Just then, and notice now for the third time, the man in the house he clothed, clothed with linen, who had the inkhorn at his side, reported back and said, I have done as you have commanded me. If you recall early on in our study in Revelation, I said you have to understand the Old Testament to correctly interpret the book of Revelation because so many of the verses refer back to the Old Testament. Here, just taking two words that are placed side by side from Revelation chapter 1, found three times in Ezekiel chapter 9, identify the Son of Man once again as judge. This is what I want you to grasp. Come back with me to Revelation chapter 1. And at end verse 13, it says, 
the description of the Son of Man and girded about the chest with a golden band. The golden bands only occur twice here and then over in chapter 15 and verse 6. And guess what? Once again, it is the context of judgment, context of judgment. As we transition now down to verse 14 and following, there are seven features to the picture of Jesus. And we'll see this in verses 14 through 16. Remember, seven is the number of completion of perfection. We have seven features of our Lord Jesus Christ. Beginning here in verse 14, his head and his hair were white like wool, as white as snow. It's the same kind of description as the ancient of days. Remember God the Father in Daniel chapter 7 and verse 9. Is it the idea of just age? No. It's the idea of eternality. Jesus being eternally God. Like the Father have always existed. So this is the eternal one. It is about to enact judgment. We'll see further here in verse 14. And his eyes like a flame of fire. When we get to chapter 2 and verse 18 with a particular church, and then once again in chapter 19, verse 12, when Christ comes back the second time, this is how he is described. Eyes like a flame of fire. It shows discernment in judgment. The one that is coming back knows who the enemies are, and he himself will put them down. I find it personally intriguing Because in Revelation chapter 2 and verse 18, speaking about the church of Thyatira, Jesus is introduced as having eyes like a flame of fire. Why? He's the one who is evaluating them. He is the discerning one. He is the one who is going to call them out for their compromise. That's who he is. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, In verse 13, speaking of the Christian's future judgment at the Bema seat, Paul writes, each one's work, notice work is singular there, our life's work will become manifest. For the day, see the day that Christ comes back, the rapture will declare it because it will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. Christ, the eternal God, The Son of Man has eyes like a flame of fire. The description here is he's totally discerning. And he will know not only what you believed, but why you did what you did, child of God, and will reward you accordingly. Continuing now with the third feature in verse 15. His feet were like fine brass, as if refined in a furnace. Uh, the feet sometimes in Scripture just show movement. Uh, in Acts chapter 5 and verse 9, speaking of those that would carry out Ananias and Sapphira once they were killed for their hypocrisy, but feet, Luke 179, Romans 315, 10:15, show movement. It's Christ who is moving and evaluating in each of the churches. And it's interesting that the feet are described here as refined in a furnace. Again, I point you back to Hebrews 4:15. Christ was tempted in all points like we. You recall from Matthew 4 and Luke 4, the hellish temptations that Satan hurled 
at the Lord Jesus Christ, and yet he was found faithful. He did not compromise. He has been refined as in a furnace. He is worthy to judge us. The fourth feature, and his voice as the sound of many waters. Listen to Psalm 93 and verse 4. The Lord on high is mightier than the noise of many waters, than the mighty waves of the sea. See, it shows his power. Jesus has power and authority. I mean, think about it just for a moment. Since we know that Jesus was with the Father in creation, just words were spoken. And the universe came into existence as we know it. His voice as the sound of many waters. He's powerful. And now the fifth feature, down in verse 16. He had in his right hand seven stars. It's a description of control. He is the one who dispatches the seven angels. And by the way, the word for angels uh, just means messenger, sometimes used of literal angels, but it's also used of human messengers. And that is the case in the book of James, and we'll study that in more detail later on. But it is Christ who holds, and if it is referring to the pastor's to those seven churches. He's the one who possesses them. He controls them. He protects them. We find our all in all in Jesus Christ. And in the sixth feature, out of his mouth went a sharp, two-edged sword. This was a large-bladed sword of Thracian origin. Uh, Thracia was a city in Turkey, and they were renowned for their large swords. That term uh, we see several times in the scripture. Uh, but just for a moment, just to show you what is coming, Revelation chapter 19. Would you turn there with me? Revelation chapter 19. And let me introduce a few of the details of the second coming of Jesus Christ. Revelation chapter 19, down to verse 13. Speaking of Jesus, he was clothed with a robe dipped in blood. This is not a reference to his death on the cross. He's slaying his enemies and the blood is splattering over his garments, this is the idea. And his name is called the Word of God. Verse 14, and the armies in heaven clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. That's us coming back with Christ. Verse 15. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword that with it he should strike the nations and he himself will rule them with the rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of almighty God. So he is described as the son of man as having this sharp sword in his mouth. And then finally, the seventh feature, uh, down back in Revelation 1, 16. And his countenance was like the sun shining in his strength. This goes back to Deborah and Barak and the song of Deborah, uh, Judges chapter 5, verse 31. But this Jesus is all glorious, he gave Peter, James, and John a taste of his glory in Matthew 17 at the transfiguration. And his countenance was like the sun shining in his face. We're seeing him in the fullness of his glory. 
And how does John respond? The one who had at one time reclined on the Lord's breast. Remember that at the Last Supper? And when I saw him, writes John, I fell at his feet as dead. What do we have John doing? Falling down at the feet of his judge. He now sees Christ in his resurrected and glorified form and he marvels and it takes his life away. May I ask you, why was John on the Isle of Patmos? He was there to write. He needed to record for you and me the revelation of Jesus Christ. He was there to serve his judge. And how does he show himself? He falls at his feet. That's why our first point is humbly serve the judge of the church. Now may I take us to the transition to our second point, which is boldly serve the judge of the church. And that's Revelation 117b, the second half of the verse, down to 120. Observe with me here in the second half of verse 17 as John is there as dead at the feet of the Lord, but he laid his right hand on me. You want to talk about the power of touch? It's right there. Our Lord Jesus, the same yesterday, today, and forever, is a compassionate God. And he saw John's weakness and his inability. So the Lord reaches out to comfort and to strengthen him for the work before him. And then our Lord says to John, the most repeated command in the Bible, do not be afraid. How did I put it? Boldly served the judge of the church. John was there because of preaching the gospel. He was banished to the island because the mission didn't like the message that John preached. So it's easy to cower and say, you know, I'm going to spend my last days just somewhere quietly and just out of the public sight, but not so. We are to be servants of Jesus Christ, not only to humbly serve the judge of the church, but to boldly do so. And Jesus self-identifies and he says, I am. Ago a me, from John 8.58, remember before Abraham was, I am. Tying us back to Exodus chapter 3 and verse 14, speaking of the eternality of God, I am the first and the last. And here's what should encourage and embolden all of us. Verse 18. I am he who lives and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. John has nothing to fear because Christ conquered death. Jesus Christ came, and as it says in John 10, he laid his life down, but then he took it back up again. So here we have the Apostle John. And he was at the feet of Jesus, overwhelmed by the vision that he had witnessed. And what do we have John doing? He is now humbly, but is commissioned boldly to serve his Lord. Jesus then says, I have the keys of Hades and death. Christ rules over death. 
That's why in 1 Corinthians 15, 57, we have to be reminded that we don't fight for victory, but from victory. Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Why is John here? Look at verse 19. Jesus says, write. Write. This is how John is now to serve the Lord Jesus Christ. And if the Lord calls you to write, you write, and you write boldly. If he calls you to preach, you preach, and you preach boldly. He calls us all to witness. We witness, and we witness boldly. Why? Because he's conquered death. There should be no tool or tactic that the wicked one can use to silence us. Because we have a Savior that has conquered death. And even if we are threatened that someone's going to take our very life, Jesus says, don't be afraid of him who can kill the body and do no more. So John is given a tremendous commission to record this 22-chaptered book that is the end of the Revelation and the Bible. We started with Genesis and the book of beginnings, and then we have the unveiling, the Revelation, to close it out. And then down in verse 20, the mystery, a sacred secret, once hid but now revealed. The mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand. Remember, the right is the side of power. Christ holds those messengers, those pastors if they are. And the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. And again, I point out that the word here for angels can be used of human messengers. James chapter 2 and verse 25 speaks about those that Joshua dispatched and they were humans with a message, okay? So, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands which you saw are the seven churches. Let me read you a, a brief story. Girl's warning saves dozens from tsunami. In Phuket, Thailand, Tilly Smith a determined 10-year-old girl saved her parents and dozens of fellow vacationers from the deadly tsunami because she had studied a school geography lesson and then courageously spoke what she knew to be true. As Tilly's family enjoyed a day at the beach, the sea began to bubble and rush away from the shore. While the adults were merely curious, Tilly was petrified with fear mommy we must get off the beach now she said i think there's going to be a tsunami the adults didn't even understand her warning until tilly referred to it as a tidal wave once they understood they all believed the youngster and evacuated the area minutes later the water surged right over the beach and demolished everything in this path the resort was destroyed but that section of beach was one of the few places along the shores of Phuket where no one was killed or even seriously hurt. Tilly was praised for raising the alarm. I think it's phenomenal that Tilly's parents and the others on the beach are alive because she studied hard at school, said the hotel's manager. She's a hero. Tilly gives the credit to her geography teacher for his lesson on how earthquakes cause tsunamis. She explained, I was on the beach and the water started to go funny. I recognized what was happening and had a feeling there was going to be a tsunami. As those who know that judgment is coming, 
but also know that God has provided a way to escape. Are we ready, willing, and courageous enough to tell others? Boldly serve the judge of the church. God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. And if all the hosts of hell are tossed at you, there is nothing to fear because the Almighty is the one who has commissioned us. So we boldly serve the judge of the church as John would write the book of Revelation. That was his assignment. You and I need to be obedient. Peter says as each one has received a gift, minister it to one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. We need to boldly serve the judge of the church. We need to humbly serve the judge of the church. John was overwhelmed by the vision of the resurrected and glorified Christ, fell at the feet of Jesus, and it prepared his heart because God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. May we humbly and for length of days serve the judge of the church. Join me in closing prayer. Father, I thank you for John's commissioning. He one day wanted a blank check so that he could sit on the son's right or left hand in the kingdom. But he did not know what he fully asked for. And yes, he was identified with the cup and the baptism of Jesus, the suffering and even the death of Christ. But yet, Lord, in his old age, he humbly and boldly served his judge. May we do the same, I ask in Jesus' name. Amen.